This is episode number 64 with John Tig Tigan. Welcome to American Snippets, your source for inspirational, motivational, and selfless stories and interviews from exceptional people across the nation. And now, here's your host, Barb Allen and Dave Brown. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the American Snippets podcast. Thank you so much for listening in to today's show. Again, my name is Dave Brown. I'm a real estate investor, lifestyle entrepreneur, and the co-host here, along with my partner, Gold Star Wife, author and speaker, Barbara Allen. And today, we have an incredible show for you, a very special guest, a real treat, Um, We first interviewed him on our very first Facebook Live broadcast that we did about three weeks ago on our Facebook page at American Sippets. His name is John Tig Tigan, and he is a former Marine sergeant, and he is one of the secret soldiers of Benghazi. We all know Benghazi. We we know the story. We know what happened there on September 11th, 2012. And he actually, uh, John actually co-authored the book 13 Hours, along with other members of that Annex security team and a New York Times bestselling author, Mitchell Zukoff. Uh, Tig also consulted on the movie, which many of you I'm sure have seen, uh, the movie 13 Hours, The Secret Soldiers of Mangazi. He helped with the set design and the movie script. Uh, John is an incredible human being. He is a hero. And we are really excited and so grateful that he took the time to sit down with us to share his story and also tell us about all the wonderful things that he and his wife are doing today to give back to this great nation. Uh, I'm going to give you John's social media links at the end of this podcast so you can make sure to thank him for his service and let him know that you listened in to his story. Now, without further ado, here is Barbara Allen with John Tig. Good morning here at American Snippets. Thank you, everybody who waited out technical issues. I'm going to go ahead and just suck it up and take full accountability here for some things that I did not foresee being issues uh, as we set this broadcast up. But I'm also going to go ahead and thank our guest again. I'm just going to thank him anyway profusely throughout this. But now he gets extra cool points for working with us through the scheduling mishap. Thanks to yours truly and the uh, technical issues, which nobody foresaw. So we'll talk a little bit, give people a chance to hop on. Last week was the anniversary of 9-11-2001. It was the 17th anniversary of that. I cannot believe it was 17 years ago, several lifetimes ago for so many of us. We all watched as there were ceremonies and posts honoring, reflecting on the heroism and tragedy of that day, but also a new call that adds hope to us, a call for the unity, to restore the unity that existed in the country in the immediate aftermath of that event and seems to have faded since then. Now, this week, we are going to talk about the you know, other 9-11, the one that so many people sort of have forgotten, have get, have, has gotten kind of brushed on the wayside, uh, the 9-11 that, of course, happened in Benghazi in 2012, when American Ambassador Christopher Stevens U.S. Foreign Service Information Officer Sean Smith and veterans and CIA contractors Tyrone Woods and Glenn Doherty were killed in Libya, one of the most controversial incidents uh, of late of history that is the the source of a lot of conflict still and divided opinions. Uh, Last year, we interviewed our friend Max Martini, who portrayed Mark Oz Geist in the movie 13 Hours, which I think as 
movies and film and media are where a lot of people still tend to get their news. Uh, that that movie, I I think, did justice to the event and portrayed it. But we're going to hear firsthand now from somebody who lived through those events, who survived those events and is surviving in the aftermath of those events, who is undoubtedly the true word of a hero, which is often overused in words today. Probably his wife would would uh, deny that sometimes because all wives do, right? But uh, <laughs> but he's certainly a little bit of an extra hero to us today too. Here, John Tig Tigan. Now, TK, our mutual friend, swears to me your last name is actually produced Tigan. Is that correct? Tigan. TK did it, man. He did it right. I'm like, are you sure? Dude, I watched dozens of interviews trying to nail this. I'm like, TK, forget everybody says Tegan. He assured me so. Tegan. But I just sometimes I don't even recognize it. Anymore. I just whatever. Just go with it, right? So, all right, TK. Next round of tequila is on me, even though you have a sponsor. All right, so <laughs> <laughs> we're okay to call, you prefer to call Tig. How's that work, John? Tig. However you want to call me, doesn't matter. You're just so easy. For dinner. We're good. <laughs> Thank you so much for being so easygoing and and all of that. So obviously. We're going to get around to speaking about Benghazi because that is a huge event and probably what, you know, a lot of people are going to tune in now, cut out of work for and catch it later on the replay a little bit. But I think it's important that uh, we all understand that Benghazi is not the only time that you ever served our country in any capacity. I think uh, it's very important to go back and reflect on your prior service. You had years of prior service in different capacities. You were a United States Marine? Yeah, I still am, but yes. You, you still are a United States Marine. Good. I know a lot of Marines. I love them. I love the little kind of crazy you all are. Used to kind of scare me, but uh, I think <laughs> I think I think I get it now. You're kind of kind of fun once you learn to roll with it. Oh, yeah. uh, so, what did I saw somewhere that you became a Marine or you enlisted when you were 17? Is that correct? Yeah, but it was I wasn't active duty. I was a, they do a delayed entry program. Okay. Do it a year prior to you go to boot camp. Right. But you still, as a 17-year-old, walked into a recruiting office and said, I'm going to be a Marine? Yep. So I'm the mom of four boys now. And so it's a little hard to, they're like 19, 18, 17, 14, however old they are, I can't remember, right? There's too many of them, but they're about that age. And I'm like looking at my boys and trying to picture them walking into a recruiting station and signing on. And I know so many people, obviously, who are still, and so many moms now my age with kids our age, doing the same. So it puts it in extra light. What drove you as a 17-year-old to take such a huge step? I just pretty much wanted to do it ever since I was a kid, since I, well, pretty much since I can remember. And uh, the, what kind of pushed me towards the Marine Corps mainly was full metal jacket. Got it. Got to love it, man. That boot camp scene and stuff, but it was just, I was like, I'm going to do that. (laughs) That's a, you know, the other Marines I talked to is always something. The last one was like, I had the recruiter walk in and all the chicks were after him. I'm like, I'm going to be that guy. Right. So whatever the cause, the fact that you stayed with it and you commit to it is, uh, is truly remarkable. Do you, can you talk a little bit about your service, you know, before any, uh, any of this happened? Was there any, Kind of particular moment that stands out, a defining moment for your life, one of the challenges you remember? I could probably say one of the moments that stand out is doing the freaking 20 mile humps. Yeah. I really remember the pain of them. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I served, I didn't have any, there was no wartime when I was in. I was in between uh, 95 and 99. So, in I was a sweet just, spot. Yeah. yeah. Between everything. I don't want to say, well, I guess you could kind of say sweet, but it was really boring. 
<laughs> got a lot. Yeah, boring looks kind of nice sometimes now. Yes, it is. In, retro, in retrospect, right. Yeah. So can you tell us then what happened in your life after 9-11 that sort of <clears throat> drew you back into the non-boring side of things? The first 9-11? Yeah, the first 9-11, sorry. Um, yeah, I, I was in, actually, I was in Washington. The wife, she was stationed at Fort Lewis because you know, she's a, a army and nobody, she's almost perfect, but... <laughs> So it kind of, you know, since I watched that day, <laughs> when that happened, you know, I was, I was actually doing heating and air conditioning and um, I kind of went to work that day. And then afterwards, I went back to uh, um, the recruiter and tried to get onto back on the reserves or at least active duty, tried to. But since I was uh, did, I was rated just, what, 30% disabled because of my lower back, they pretty much said no. By then, you know, they had so many people signing up like right at the next day, had oh. such an influx fresh bodies that they didn't, even, they didn't yeah yeah they didn't work marine anymore so um i just kind of stuck around kept kept doing the heating air conditioning thing the wife she and i'm getting stationed over in kuwait and that's when i found out about contracting and how to get into contracting because the hardest part i mean i knew it was there but it was the hard parts getting into it and since she was overseas with the with one of the companies it was just you know she just hand delivered the resume and Pretty much July 2003, it's when I went over and started contracting. Oh, it's like, take my husband, please. <laughs> well, she went back with me. And, uh, we, wow. That we, both, is... we both contracted overseas. So, you know, there's all sorts of definitions of power couple. That's a word often fr- thrown about, too. But I think I think you guys meet the literal term of that. I mean, that is like one badass couple, man. That's, that's awesome and true commitment. So thank your wife for her service, too, for us. Because uh, we we love hearing that. So, what were the what were some of the challenges when you then were a contractor and she was in service? Was that I mean, was it easier then because you were both over there, or did you were you worried about each other, or did you just kind of were you able no. to kind of understand each other's path because you knew firsthand what you were dealing with? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, the, our first year because we were both contractors at the same time. She had gotten out when we we both went back as contractors, and. uh you know, in Kuwait, it's pretty much, you know, it's nothing really threatening over there. You know, she got chased around a lot, a lot by the, uh, by the Kuwaitis because she was blonde hair. You know, they love the blondes over there. So that, that was her biggest threat was, you know, just, um, you know, we kind of accepted if something was going to happen, you know, we kind of knew what we were doing, what we were getting into because we're both prior military. So it's just, we just kind of went with the flow and just dealt with everything that came. Just dealt with it. So. I went to Kuwait in 2005, uh, just for a few days or 2006, maybe when that was rolling around. And I was only there for a couple of days and I was there as a civilian pre trial hearing. But I remember that I'm also blonde and once upon a time it was natural. So I, uh, (laughs) I remember walking through the Kuwait airport there and it's very hard to describe. You actually feel kind of like hatred sent your way right the the men would actually just openly glare at us they messed around with us a little bit took our passports so they kind of tried to play with us and like scared the shit out of us really and uh and so do i get that and i think it's hard to describe unless you were even there but that experience even gave me just such even a greater respect for the people and i'm gonna go ahead and say especially the women who go to those territories there because it's like it's really just a 
super creepy, uh, intimidating. Maybe if I was military, I wouldn't have been so intimidated. You know, our escort, she's a lieutenant colonel and they're texting her. They're like, Haji, go home. Haji, we kill you. Like that kind of thing. And I was like, <laughs> and she's like, ha you know, like it was all just it's work yeah. for her. Yeah, it's definitely a different level of uh, attention that they get than guys get. Oh, yeah. Creepy, creepy stuff. So then we'll move forward into, uh, you know, well, let me talk a little bit. 9-11-2001 happened. What was the environment then for you? Like, what did that mean to you then as an American and uh, as somebody stepping up to go, trying to get back in and serve? And then, you know, what compelled you? to go to those lengths to be a contractor. There had to be some driving force that you're going to put yourself in harm's way to be a part of service in some capacity. Just to feel like I was actually uh, doing something to make a difference. You know, obviously when the, when they when hit the towers, everybody felt the anger, you know, yeah. I think especially a lot of guys that, you know, everybody pretty much jumped in definitely felt that anger. That's pretty much what drove them to do what they did. And, you know, I just felt like I had to do something. I had to figure a way to get over there to do it. And, that was the only way I could do it. So went that contractor route. So you went the contractor route. So then we'll fast forward to 9-11-2012. I'm sorry, Dave's message. He always yells at me, but he's like standing behind us. <laughs> I can't pretend he's not there. He's like behind me going like this, right? So I'm sorry. <laughs> Honestly, you know, like that's my flaw. So, okay, 9-11-2012 then. You are... In Libya, and this was not. How long have you been deployed on on um, different jobs? But at the time that rolled around, that day rolled around. Uh, uh, we, I want to say, I'd probably been there maybe just a little bit over thirty days or so. Um, I was on my third trip there, but uh, fourth trip in Benghazi itself, or uh, sorry, in Libya itself. Wow. So I've been there for. A while. So you had a good sense of the fear. And did, uh, did I see somewhere in one of your interviews, did you say that the, the actual citizens there, they were supportive of you and happy, happy of your, most of them? Yeah, I never really got the stink eye vibe like I did a lot of the other places. Yeah. Of course, you're going to have a few here and there, but, you know, we'd go out into the stores and be greeted and welcome. I mean, it, they'd run across the street and get us something to drink. We want something to drink. Wow. It was totally different to anywhere else I've been. I think that's important for people to know too, because as you know, what's portrayed, you know, in the media, we're, we're you know, we're not there, right? So we don't know what's actually going on. And yeah. so, once upon a time, we relied on the media to tell us what was going on. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So I think it's good to know that the people there actually were, you know, supportive of, of your presence there, because yeah. that's not necessarily what we're led to believe. Yeah, it's it, and it's kind of sad. I mean, you know, just even after after the attack, you know, they a whole bunch of them rose up and you know they pushed uh, Ansar Sri out of town. Several dozen, I believe, got killed doing it. You know, these are just you know everyday citizens, and they, you know, we didn't go back and even help them do that. We just kind of pretty much ignored it. It was my my opinion, pretty sad. Yeah. Yeah. And so I know we have some people hopping on now. It was hard. I'm like trying to tell people to ditch work, right? Like, ditch work. Your boss won't care. It's okay. Uh, but <laughs> cause that's how I roll too. But uh, anybody who is hopping on now, if you have a question or you want to like and share and let Tig know, you know what you're thinking of this too. We have Dave over there ready to, um, to kind of field those and, and pass them along. But so that day then in night in, uh, 2012 when you were in, in Libya there. Did you have a sense 
I mean, the, the embassy had been had had some kind of skirmishes before. There had been some minor incidents of people kind of antagonizing you all there. Or yeah, well, you have the consulate in Benghazi. Yeah, um, I think uh, the first time they threw a grenade over the wall, and the second time they actually uh, blew a, about a Volkswagen-sized hole. They uh, they had snuck up on the outer perimeter and uh, just put a, a an explosive device out of, out on the wall and exploded and i was actually there that night i think that happened i think it was about one in the morning between 12 and one in the morning i think it happened and bob he was the chief of base at the time you know and i, I was actually up doing the night shift and you know you wake everybody up you know after you wake people up here i'm getting my gear on i'm getting the vehicle set and you know we got ready to go it probably took us a little bit longer to get ready than it did the, uh, on 9-11 um but still, we're probably definitely within 15 minutes ready to go. And again, Bob did not let us leave. He told us, no, stay here. You know, we're, we'll let 17 Feb handle it. So, you know, for people who keep saying that there was no stand down order, well, he actually gave it to us again, you yeah. know, prior to that. So, it was yeah. just, it was. so that brings up a whole slew of, of issues too. I cannot imagine. What it is like. So I have my own experience with it almost like kind of pales in comparison to yours with, you know, false news and impressions and, and such and people kind of speaking out against something that you, I experienced firsthand. What is that like to you to ha a to have been there and get that stand down order, which goes against your every instinct. Right. And then B, to have people here just sitting in their homes, the keyboard warriors who really know nothing about it other than what is out there in the media, depending on which outlet they're watching, because both sides, you know, who knows where, where they get half their stuff from. But um, what is that like for you to hear people saying, no, you're wrong, that didn't happen? I pretty much nowadays, I just ignore it. Um, yeah. Pretty much, well, you know, you're just going to just call them CNN brain dead, pretty much. <laughs> That's 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 the type of people who say, "Oh, you were never told to stand down; it was all a lie." The only reason why they say it was all lies because you know you got the politicians that are on the on the left that that's that's what they want people to know, people to believe in because they don't want to feel like they're the incompetent ones that didn't do the job that was correct. So it's easy, it's easier, and it fits their narrative a lot better. Yeah, you know, it's just stupidity on their part, you know. Everything that we testified against, everything that we said in the book, and the only thing that they say that we lied about is stand down order. Why we why would we lie just about one thing? If we're gonna lie, we might as well lie about a lot. Yeah. So but you wanna believe everything but one but what three words? One word? You know, I mean, come on. Give me a break. Yeah. And so now what is that like and how has that made you kind of rethink life after because you're given a direct order and everything in you is kind of trained to follow those direct orders but what a conflict then when you're not going to follow that direct order and ultimately you didn't i mean what, <coughs> what thought process what well i think the difference for us i think you know if you're in the military you're probably going to follow that order okay <laughs> we weren't in the military so it ain't like we're going to get court-martialed um so the biggest thing that would happen to us we would have got fired you know that's so, but to us at that point in time, we're, we weren't waiting no more. Yeah. I'm pretty sure we were going to be able to find another job if we did. <laughs> yeah. That's a good, I guess maybe there's something a little liberating about that. 
when you're like, well, what's the worst that can happen? And go for, you know, once you assess that there, what's the worst that can happen? And you realize that the worst but, is not to do anything. But even then, Bob himself couldn't fire us. Because we're not in his chain of command. He, he controls that base. We will never be able to go back to his base. But other than that, he can fire us. He can just relieve us of that base. So yeah. I'm guessing like Bob isn't on your Christmas card list or anything like that. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't hate the guy. I just think he was in a, a position that he didn't really truly understand. He was thrown into that because, you know, he's on his last tour, I guess you could say. He's getting retired. I think he was in for like 30 years. Um, a lot of times he was at the farm anyways. But, you know, I honestly believe if he thought or knew that they were going to get killed over there, he would have let us go. I believe that. I mean, I, would, okay. I, mean, I don't think anybody that would not let you go. But he was just risk adverse. And again, I don't hate the guy, but I would never work for the guy again. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good of you. So, uh, you know, through the course of that night, I'm not going to ask you to walk through that whole night. I can't imagine what it's like to say that over and over and over again, right? And have to relive all of that. Uh, well, I do at least a couple times a month. Yeah. Right. So I'm just going to ask you, you know, if there is any one moment in that evening that, uh, you know, was like kind of, a game changer for you or where you thought maybe this isn't going to end well for us. And I would, went to- I would probably say when the mortars came in, Okay. Um, you know, initially when we went to the console initially, you're kind of thinking, cause you know, they just said there was a, an unknown number of individuals that were on the concert grounds. Um, I think the team said it was like between 40 to 60, they thought maybe even more. So when we're going over there, you're kind of thinking, well, this may not end well for us, you know, but we're going to try to do something. Um, but once we got on there, you know, didn't, didn't really think we weren't going to make it out of there. Um, and then when we got the, when the, but when the mortars came into our compound, that was kind of one of those moments where we might actually might not make it out of here because we have zero defense for mortars. They, the mortars would have kept coming in and we wouldn't have made it out. There's nowhere we could hide. And we would just have to pretty much leave the, leave the compound ourselves and find another place to go. That's a, <laughs> a fly. Uh, all right. So do you, uh, are there moments now where you're faced with something that you may think, oh man, like this isn't going to end well or I don't know how I'm going to do it. And do, does that experience then kind of give you some like new sense of, whatever over you know whatever life is throwing at you you know all sorts of things can go wrong in life as we know as happened today right this morning it's even we're trying to set it up do you find that you're able to like handle all the unexpected annoyances and obstacles maybe differently than you were before you go through something so extreme or i mean not just because of that night but there's been you know i did it for 10 years so there's previous nights (laughs) some were more intense than actually than benghazi was just difference with that one and some of the other ones is that one was definitely the longest i've been involved i was in contact with the enemy usually you know it's it's really fast really intense and it's on this but you know that that's like over in afghanistan and iraq where you have no big mill that can come and pretty much save your ass so over here it was we were by ourselves but i I think it definitely it helps you get through things is you know bad things happen obviously every day but you can sit there and think well i've been through worse so this is you know this is going to be a cakewalk yeah and it's 
you definitely change your thinking about multiple things. Um, so, I mean, what does it mean to you that it was not an American aircraft that came and got you out? That it, when you guys came home courtesy of somebody else's mm-hmm. support? You know, at the time, you're not thinking about it. Um, right. You're just getting on the plane. Like, I don't care who the hell is flying this thing. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Because, you know, I mean, I know being at the airport sitting there thinking, why in the hell did nothing ever come? Uh, yeah, we, we actually, we kind of talked about it a little bit on the tarmac. And, you know, it was just like, why didn't they say anything? You know, what's going on? And you know, the team leader, country team leader didn't have nothing to say. I mean, who knows if they even knew anything, but. It's it's it was definitely frustrating, especially finding out afterwards all the uh, all the spin and the baloney that they put on it, saying there's no assets available. You know, finding the marine a marine unit had to change it out of uniform three times, so that delayed them by what three four hours, I think they said. Wow. You know, and again, that just goes back to their uh, incompetence and lack of leadership. Because if they'd have known anything about the locals, especially in Benghazi. They wouldn't have cared what the hell they were wearing. Yeah. You know, they probably would have had dinner waiting for them after the firefight was over. <laughs> so, Maddening. It is. So now, do you... Th- oh, go ahead. You know, I don't think any... There's nothing that they could have done that would have saved Stevens and Sean Smith's life that night unless they did something prior, which was more adequate security. Um, but it would have made a difference for Ronan Bob if they had said something. Yeah. So we, when we were even, you know, posting about this yesterday, we had one woman pop on and, you know, cause there's always those people, right? But this was just one of them. And she was like, look, the ambassador didn't call for help in time. Everything you all are saying, you know, Benghazi conspiracy was a lie. It was the ambassador's fault because he didn't call for help in time. What would you, if anything, have to say to somebody? Who comes out oh, like that? He did call for help. He called for help months prior, asking for more security. That's that was his call for help. Right. So for them to say that, that's just pure stupidity. Um, they called us immediately. We're the closest asset that they had, so they called us immediately when they found out the attackers were already on their compound. That's what a lot of people forget. It wasn't a protest. It was a full-on attack, and by the time they knew, they were already overcome by the enemy. Um, so, you know, they did exactly what they should have did at that time. You know, the failure um, was on the leadership part because he requested for help. Multiple. Yeah. They requested for more help back in 2011. So that, that whole argument just gets thrown right out the window, in my opinion. And you were there. So hopefully people kind of give some, a little bit of credit to your opinion. Do you think that, what happened there and the lack of response and you all being left on your own, how, how you had to deal with that. Do you think that sends any kind of message or example or sets a precedent in the minds of, of our enemies or maybe other people now filling the positions that you all were filling? Um, I think it did while the last administration was still there, but now it was new. I don't, not I don't, so not so much, but it did. I mean, it's, it, it was a, bad presence that they sent because it just means they can do whatever they want and nothing's going to happen to them. You know, just like the whole draw the draw the line in the sand. Well, they would cross that line and nothing happens to them. You know, again, that all that does is just embolden your enemy. It's, you don't know that and you definitely should not be in a position. Yeah. What was it um, 
those first first few months when you got back here and you were you know back on American soil, what were those months like for you? Did you were you able to kind of <clears throat> have some time to yourselves? Were you thrust right into chaos? Uh, were you able to kind of process things a bit? No, you pretty much we got you know we got thrusted right into it. Not the political portion of it, but the investigation portion. Um, you know, when we were in Germany, they asked us if we wanted to talk to the FBI. We told them no. You know, we got back here in the states, and that's when more of the, the video or the rumors about the protests in the video. So we get back. You know, we go to the agency. You know, we get debriefed. I think we flew home, came back a week later to, you know, talk to the FBI then. Um, then it wasn't a choice anymore. So you're going to have to talk to them, you know, but <clears throat> then, you know, you got a chance. I got a chance to decompress because I was actually home for about six months because of the, I had pretty much road rash on my lungs from going in and out of the fire. Oh man. Just for the bastards. So it, it took a while to heal and, you know, but still went back to work, deployed two more times. You know, a lot of people think, oh, Benghazi happened, you guys quit, and you wrote a book. Well, no, actually, I, I had to wait heal for six months, and I went back to work. How did you even get to a place where you were like, you know what? What happened, happened. I'm going to go back. Like how? And this, I think, is important for me, definitely in my life. And this is why I've said to people, I'm like, you all set such a precedent for me, and I, fo- I try to follow your lead. Got a little steeped in bitterness, and there are a lot of things that for a long time I was like, you know, I, I'm out, you know, I'm done. But you all just jumped kind of, you know, you jumped right back in. How, where did you find the, you know, the heart and the, the strength to even say, I'm going to do it again? Well, you, you kind of think about, you know, especially the ones that, that sacrificed, um, the ones that didn't make it back. And I kind of, the way I thought it was like, you know, if it was, if it was me that didn't make it back, I wouldn't want them to sit at home and, you know, and, go through sad moments and be depressed. I'd rather have them get back into the fight because you're good at your job and you're good at what you do. And the honor me would be to stay in the fight and not give up. I mean, you always, you always got to move forward. You always got to look for the next objective and, you know, you're keeping the enemy in their backyard versus fighting them in your own backyard. And a lot of people kind of forget that. And, you know, I hear it all the time. Why are we still fighting overseas when we bring all of our guys back home? Well, we're fighting overseas because we got we brought our guys back home and they were able to attack us on 9-11 because we weren't yeah. on their own turf. So then they brought the fight over to us while well, we pushed it back. And so far, we're keeping them over there. You know, let them kind of morbid, but let them kill their, their women and children instead of coming over here killing our women and children. That's yeah. Funny. No, that's not. I don't think that's morbid. I think that's a harsh reality. And people are afraid to actually say that. You know, everyone's so worried. It sounds cruel. But. When it comes right down to it, that's the choice. And we're just so grateful that there are people like you all to go out there and, and keep that. And I hope that you all get as much support from people as you get the hate and the crap, you know, that, that's spewing your way because. Yeah, I definitely say to get more, uh, more support than hate every now and then. Actually, the last two guys have been actually a couple army guys. <laughs> I don't know what is with the army guys here lately. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they didn't come on board doing the whole lying about the stand down order. And it's like, well, right here, it's right here. It's in the, the committee's uh, paperwork saying it actually was given, but it's more of a hearsay. He, he said, she said, 
And then they want to reword it. Oh, he wasn't telling you to stand down. He was telling you to shut your mouth and sit down. Well, that's just what you deal with. You're just like, okay, you just want to reword it. So, again, it fits your agenda, your your narrative. Okay. And, you know, I get, you know, that's usually what I get. I guess it could could be worse. So if there is any form of justice to be had in this case, the justice wasn't seen back then. But now, if there could be some form of justice seen for what occurred in there, you know, at Benghazi, what would that look like in your eyes? Um, <clears throat> I think. Definitely, uh, I believe it was, I can't remember who, Charlene Lamb, the, the lady who was in charge of security for the embassy, for the consulates and embassies. I think she should definitely be prosecuted for a minimum of involuntary manslaughter. Cause, you know, you want things to change. You want, you know, people to be protected. That's the only way you're going to change things. You know, you got the leadership who's back home in, in DC, who's never actually spent one minute on the ground doing security. But yet you're going to tell the guys on the ground that you don't need security. You got enough, whatever. Well, then to me, you just put your, their lives in your hand and anything that ever happens to them, you become responsible. And that's how you change people's mindset. Say, well, if I screw up, if I, if it's all about money, well, you allocate the money from somewhere else, but you should take 100% responsibility for whatever happens to them. Just like, you know, a CEO that's back here in the States, if something, major happens like a scandal happens guess who pays for it the ceo he'll go to prison yeah i mean was it bernie murdoff or whatever whatever those scams that he was running with his business i mean kind of the same thing you know he was doing personally but you should be held liable personally i mean you're in a leadership position you're getting paid by the taxpayers to make sure all those people that are under you are protected and secure but yet you're going to sit there and say well i lost uh, you know under the paperwork on my desk i think that's what's her excuse Oh, nice. So, well, then you should pay the price. If they pay the ultimate price. You should be paying the ultimate price while you're alive. You should spend the rest of your freaking life in prison. You know, you want things to change in, in our government. That's you hold them, them accountable, not promote them and move them out of the move them out of the way. That's pretty much what happened to her. She got promoted and moved up. So that is it's enraging, right? You move up because you screwed up. Yeah. Yeah, um, and once again, that's something that I saw happen in my world too, and it, I had a long time getting past the anger in that. So I admire the way that you guys were able to kind of talk so calmly about it. You know, whatever you do in your own lives, you do in your own lives. You know, but <laughs> you're not out there doing that. Do you have any advice that you would offer if there was somebody, you know, a twenty-something-year-old guy comes up to you and says, "Hey, Tig." I'm going to go be a contractor now. Can you offer me any advice? I'd say do it. Um, where to go to look for a job, I don't know anymore. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I would definitely, because uh, you kind of take a lot of things for granted, you know, thinking that, you know, your leadership has, you know, who to contact in case of emergencies, you know, where to go. You know, I, I think that's one thing that we kind of took for granted, thinking that, you know, like the chief of base would have had all the phone numbers for like, if this general's gone or this guy's gone, you know, he kind of moved down the chain of command. He didn't have it that night. That's why he never got a hold of 75 guys. He had like one guy's phone number. Wow. And that was, that's why, I mean, the whole entire night, they never got in contact with the QRF for uh, the consulate. 
Um, you know, just do your own diligence and just make sure all the I's and T's are actually crossed. And yeah. Ask them, you know, just uh, say, yeah, and, you know, just, well, what about this and something like this? And they may have the answer. They may not even thought of it. So that would be my biggest thing, especially if you're going to the security portion. But even if you're not, you might want to question what the security measures are for it. Yeah. For and and then do you think that somebody going over there now, if they come in and they notice something that they see a gap like that, yep. do you think it's a value to them to come forward and report it when they may or may not be kind of shut down for it? Or do you think that it's gotten better since you, do you think there have been lessons learned since Benghazi and things are, a little tighter and more structured now? I'm pretty sure there's definitely lessons learned, um, <clears throat> but it doesn't mean things are going to change. Again, it goes back to the whole, if I'm not responsible for anything, then why bother even, you know, I'll just sign off on it and let it go. You know, versus, well, if something happens, now I got to sit down and think about it and actually contemplate the, the risks if I sign this for this or that. So, but... Again, I would definitely just pay attention. And if you do see something or you have to question about, just ask. I mean, 90% of the time, they, they might make fun of you because they themselves probably didn't think of it. That's usually what I found out in a lot of cases was they, they kind of let something go. And they, oh, they make fun of it the next day you know. And now they're empty. Now they, yeah, but they're going to credit themselves. <laughs> it happens. It's yeah. A, yeah. Yeah. Not just these other guys that suggest so. Yeah, which seems crazy that that could happen in what is supposed to be, you know, some ultra elite, let's say mature organization, right? And it's just it's mind blowing to me. There's a and not to bad mouth, but when I, you know, when I came out and I noticed things that had happened, a breakdown of command and all that in the unit where my husband was killed, and I was like, look, how does that even happen? I'm genuinely trying to understand because. When you're on the outside looking in and you don't live that life, look, my assumption was that everybody who served in uniform is of a higher caliber, that all these protocols were going to be in place. It just never occurred to me that something like what could happen in our case happened. And now it would never have occurred to me that something that happened in Benghazi could happen the way it happened. You know, everybody outside of that world who doesn't live it, maybe we don't think about it because it just seems like, oh, that would never happen, you know, because everybody we all assume that you guys or whoever the leadership is over there has their shit together and is going to be on top of it right and would never allow such a thing to happen to anybody let alone americans there serving so it's, uh, it's crazy i mean just you know the, the the militia that finally came and got us um and got us off out of the annex to the airport they didn't even know they were even in the gaza they had nothing they, they had no idea they were there and this is the intel service so you know, again, they don't know everything, obviously. There's, yeah. there, I have not seen one Jason Bourne yet. I'm <laughs> yeah. And you're still looking? I'm still looking. <laughs> Crazy. See, so it's not always like the movies, but speaking of that, then, you're the movie that portrayed this event, 13 Hours. How do you feel that did in terms of portraying actual events? Um, it did, it did a, a pretty good job. Um, I'd, I'd probably say it's pretty close to 60% being accurate. A lot of the things that happened didn't happen exactly that way. You know, like, uh, it, in the movie, it said that I lost the grenade launcher. Well, I didn't lose it and actually got put back in the vehicle that got left behind. 
um, uh, just little things like that. And yeah. Like the, the attacks, I was moving on to the consulate, no vehicles got exploded, no buses blew up, nothing like that. So, you know, it's just little things like that that kind of made, made it from 100% down to 60%. More cinematic. It mixed in with other guys, which was, you know, again, you're taking 13 hours, punching it down to two hours. And it's kind of like that TV show 24. That's how it went. If you used every single guy doing because you'd have to have all this stuff going on at the same time. It's, you know, you had 20 moving parts in every second. So, yeah. And what about, I mean, what is that like to then meet this person who is you and portraying you and to have to kind of watch that experience all over again? Definitely weird. Yeah. Uh, it's it's different you know actually i still talk to a guy dominic musa i still talk to him every now and then and he actually uh he came out to my house because he's doing the tv series the purge oh yeah. He, yeah i need to be uh i'm gonna be a detective on the show can you uh help me with some weapons training so oh that's can, fun around through some weapons drills some room clearing stuff and so yeah he's he was definitely happy with that but you know I think it's pretty cool that actually he stays in touch. Max Martini, he hits me up maybe once a month to see what's going on. So, we love Max. He's he's a cool dude. He is. He's awesome. I ran into him at an event. It was an event for families of fallen soldiers. And it was like, we had to catch a flight at like 4 o'clock in the morning or something. And it was like midnight. And he was in town for some other thing. And someone recognized him. And he was cool and started talking to us about the whole thing. And then wound up staying in touch with him. I just had such respect for someone who goes to that extent to anyway, he's just seemed genuine you know like he was really supportive of the military and does his best to support the military and i know he obviously took it very seriously the role and so you wonder about that sometimes when you're watching these movies you know uh does it do these people care about who they're playing is it all just a money maker for them so did it make you money maker for him but i think uh yeah i think i talked to I didn't get to meet Dominic until actually we were on the, on the set, but, um, you know, I think I probably talked to him before they actually started filming for about two weeks straight, almost a couple times a day. Cause he's going through this, through the script. He's asking me questions, you know, what do you think about this? You know, asking about even about the, the kids and all that stuff. So you can get more of an idea of what to do, how to, how to act and stuff. So it was, I definitely think they took it serious. Yeah. And I imagine that's, important I and mean, it would have kind of sucked to see someone kind of taking it not seriously because it's something that should obviously be treated with respect and so i was glad as a moviegoer's experience it looked to me like they did a good job but what do i know you know i wasn't there but i thought it was great and it made me feel and it resonated deeply within me as i hope it did with a lot of people what you all went through i'm like you know other than vietnam veterans they're someone a generation who i look up to as well because if anybody had a right to return home and be bitter and tell this country to go screw itself and turn its back on the generation of veterans now it would be the vietnam veterans but what i have found is they're doing the exact opposite and turning around and saying we're going to make sure what happened to us never happens to anybody else and that's what i see you all doing now as well uh, you know i follow the things that you all do you know, you put out a lot of positive things out there, like moving forward and all that. And I know it can't be easy to have got to a place where you're able to do that. But turning that incident and that tragedy and that bitterness into a positive purpose, 
sounds cheesy or cliche or maybe like we should have some pink flowers and crap on here now but it's true right <laughs> like, like yeah. it, it really <laughs> the words kind of don't do it justice because it's much harder than it sounds and it can be a bigger battle do you now would you have any words of advice from the men and women returning from combat in their struggles to kind of readjust to a society that not that we're apathetic right i am a civilian i'm a you know, I'm a military family, but we were National Guard, right? So I never lived in the full military culture. And the fact that my husband died in Iraq doesn't mean that I suddenly know more about the military culture, except for, you know, the trial and stuff we went through. So most of us, it's not that we're apathetic. It's just that we don't know. And we're so twisted into thinking this way or that way by what's out there uh, that I can see how there's sort of a clash sometimes with the veterans returning home. Would you have any kind of insight or guidance to any of our combat veterans returning from service, or maybe even those from another era who are still are, are struggling to find their path. Again. No, a lot of guys I ran to, they kind of, they do have a bitter attitude, but you know, biggest thing is, you know, nobody, nobody owes you anything. Even though you went over, you did what you did. You, you volunteered to go do this. They didn't send you over there. So don't come back feeling better. You know, Sitting thinking, you know, everybody owes you something, so you have that chip on your shoulder. You know, you're just as equal to the guy who never even served. In my, that's that's me, in my opinion. Because if you start holding that, well, I did this, so I'm better than you. Well, you're going to have a hell of a rough life because, you know, for one, nobody knows really what you went through. Right. They didn't. They didn't ask you to go do it. They didn't tell you to go do it. Um, it could be somebody that you're pissed off at because he made a comment. You couldn't serve because he has diabetes or he has, you know, something you don't know, but just don't, just don't be bitter. Um, and if you're struggling, talk. I know, uh, you know, talking about what happened that night with me has been very therapeutic. And, you know, when I first started talking about it, it was very hard. It's gotten a lot easier. Um, it's been a lot easier on me because I've been able to talk about it. Even going around doing the speeches, you know, you talk to in front of all kinds of people and a lot of Vietnam vets, you know, they, they held a lot of stuff in. They didn't talk about it. They were very bitter. I mean, they have a real good reason to be bitter towards people. <laughs> right. You know, but they hear our, hear us sitting there talking about what we went through. And then, you know, either usually sometimes it's the spouse that'll email us or even the veteran himself, you know, saying, you know, since you went up there and I heard you talk, I've been starting to talk to people and damn, I do feel better. You know, it's helped me out a lot. It doesn't fix you, but it helps. Um, so. Yeah, that's outstanding. I would just, just don't feel like people owe you anything. And I don't think a lot of veterans do, but there are some that do take the extreme. And I've seen it. You know, I was when in a vehicle with one veteran, we got pulled over and, you know, he kind of pulled that, well, don't, don't, I'm a veteran, you know, don't you know who I am? I did this. I served the country for you. Kind of I'm like sitting looking at the guy like, what the hell, dude? You know, he's out there serving too because he's yeah. overseas, you know, but I'm just fine. I had to tell him, tell him to shut up. I mean, just take the ticket. You're speeding. Just suck it up. Don't be a dick. You know? I, yeah. I just got a speeding ticket not too long ago. I'm not going to say, oh, you know who I am? <laughs> you know, I'm the one freaking speeding, not the cop. <laughs> That's a good out. I will say there was one time that my uh, military ID got me out of a ticket. I didn't even mean it to, right? I was just, it was on freaking Mother's Day. I get pulled over, right? And 
I was looking for my license because shockingly, I'm not always very organized. And, uh, and my military ID fell out and the, you know, police officer was like, Oh, that's you. And, and I got off, but I never, you know, after that, like handed my military ID over and especially, you know, women like these sick jokes and you get your widow ID and all that. Right. (laughs) But, uh, I never would hand that to a law enforcement officer and say, Hey, you know, I'm a military widow. You could do that. But it's the same thing works in that community too. I think there, it's almost dangerous that I think a lot of people want to help so, so much and they create this organization and that organization, that organization, and it does help, but it can also create some sort of culture of entitlement sometimes um, where they, and I spent a few years working as a veteran service officer for my County. And I saw both ends of the spectrum. I saw people who were in with debilitating disabilities as a result of their service. Like, Oh, I got this. I'm fine. I don't need this help. Other people deserve it more. And then you see the other people coming in, like actually pissed that their buddy who served in Vietnam is on 100% while they're not because they never went, you know. So you see both ends. And it's, uh, I think it is important to kind of get that tough love reminder there that, that no, you're not entitled to anything. Although it is a tough line too, because on our end as the civilians, we don't want people to think that we take it for granted because None of us asked you to go there. None of us asked anybody to go there. But at the same point, we rely on you all to go there, just like we rely on our law enforcement officers and our first responders to do that. So I hope that all of you in those lines of service don't necessarily completely dismiss that there is some level of debt that we owe to you, whether personal or professional or just courtesy and and respect for that. But I do hate cops when they call me over, though. I I think it depends on the attitude with which it's done. You know, I've had some very nice law enforcement come over and I still get the ticket and I still get banged for 250 bucks and I got to go to court. Uh, But and then and I probably deserved it at the time. And then you got the one that set up the speed trap and you're like eight miles over after a sign you didn't see in a small town. This guy comes running over like I just robbed a freaking bank, you know, like whips around, puts his lights on. He's like got his gun, his hand on his halter. I'm like. Yes, I know. I was like, Jesus, you know, but you gotta, I try to level it out. You know, I, sometimes I do things that I probably should have got a ticket for, you know, unintentionally or not. And then, but anyway, I digress. So <laughs> the, the current attitude and the mindset in this country, you know, the current climate, we see it as divisive you know here and that's a large part of why we started what we're doing because we want to kind of bring everyone back into one core unit right but what are what are your thoughts on it on the you know mindsets on patriotism and politics and and everything that's happening out there in the general forum right now i i don't think it's i think there's a lot more patriotism than there than the media portrays I think they just want to portray the negativity because that's really what sells. I mean, yeah. you know, Antifa, they're not, they're, they're big in certain areas and only at certain times. Even some of the people that do go to those rallies, they have no idea why they're even there. You know, there's only really a true handful of Antifa guys that are doing a lot of stuff, but you know, the media will focus on it and show it like a bigger picture. You know, you got all these protests, you know, just like on the highway, a lot of people, you know, they'll start off with like, again, a dozen people and, other people will see it and then they'll just show up to show up. 
um, that happen again. They don't know why they're there. Like some of the videos you watch, some of the interviews at the protests, you know, you got the reporters going around trying to ask some questions, you know, kind of like, why are you here? Why are you protesting? And they really don't know. They have yeah. no clue. Um, but the politicians, you know, they're, uh, they're, they're acting more like reality TV stars than politicians, yeah. which way worse than a normal politician. But, you know, just like with the whole Feinstein with this, uh, the Supreme Court justice nominee, mm-hmm. she waits until this is, again, this is a reality TV show. This is what they do. They wait till that last second and ta-da, check this out. But she had the information six weeks prior. You know, okay. it's, we're, we're degrading everything that the country stood for when we start doing stuff like that. If you have information on somebody who's supposed to be a appointed Supreme Court judge, it should have been out immediately. You know, I mean, I could see maybe doing a little bit of a background, make sure the person actually exists, not like the, some of the New York Times, with, you know, anonymous freaking people. But yeah. again, it should have been, the committee should have known immediately. And I, I think she should be definitely investigated, you know, um, but it's, it's just ridiculous. And it just goes to show the rest, the rest of the population is going to see it. And that's how they're going to react to everything. You know, you got Maxine Waters, you know, telling her supporters to go and harass Trump supporters or, you that's, know, I mean, yeah. how in the hell did she not get relieved of her position? I mean, she's enacting violence against other Americans as a leader of the the Congress. I mean, it's freaking ridiculous. So if she can do it, the other individual saying, well, why can't I go do this? Yeah. That boggles our mind, too. We had somebody pop up and I was wondering when somebody was going to ask this question and it was asked, you know, your thoughts on the whole kneeling thing. We'll touch on this for a second because. You know, and then move on. It is important, but like, <clears throat> you know, obviously they have the right to protest. Obviously, I have the right to protest and protest. Yeah, but I think the the place he's doing it is wrong. Um, I'm you're paying to go watch something. I'm not going to go pay watch somebody protest. You know, you again it, that that's a place where you uh, you want to get away from reality. You want to. Yeah be able to enjoy something that shouldn't be affected by anything from the outside world. And now it's, it's just, it's, it's been politicized. It's been blown up and it is to me, it is disrespectful because of where he's doing it at. And I think, you know, one, once you go somewhere else where they play the national anthem, you know, like at a conference or a meal there, you know, once you, uh, making statements during the off season, why aren't you on TV right now making statements? Because you know the news media will eat them up. Yeah. What you got to do is say, hey, I want a press conference. You know? Yep. Again, I mean, even in the off season, I think maybe probably less than 10% of all those that kneeled actually went and did something. You know, all the rest of them, I mean, now they're getting, they're getting thrown in jail for domestic violence and drugs and all this other crap, but yet they want to protest the, the cops for, you know, equal rights and, but, it's, yeah, I, it's like there's a time and a place. I think on our end, from I, we agree. I hate seeing the national anthem and the flag. I feel like they're being weaponized against patriotism now. Like to use, you know, they're taking the one thing that united us and dissolving it for for a 
it's not the time or place. But I know that there are a lot of people and a lot of military widows, too, that I call my friends who disagree with me, who think it's not a big deal. And I can't wrap my mind around that any more than they can wrap their mind around, I think. Yeah, which is so strongly. You know, I don't get upset. I mean, I got friends who, same way, they don't really care. You know, I'm not sitting there getting argue with them and hate them for it. No. That's their opinion. And, you know, as long as they don't get irritated and pissed off about my opinion, we're good. Um, yeah. You feel differently about everything, you know, just like well, some people hate pizza and some people don't. So, you know, it's, that's what made us who we are. But some people, they just take to the stream, extreme, yes. like, like, how can you, how can you disagree with him protesting? How can you, you know, well, it's my right, just like it's his right to protest. I can protest him. You know, I think the biggest thing, I think, honestly, is what Nike. Did. Oh, you know, yeah. That's worse than what he did kneeling. Yeah. Because of what, what the statement they made with it. And no, that was just, that was just totally wrong. I think it was a very poor choice, but I think they clearly did that on purpose, knowing that they were going to get the result that they got and, and kind of boost their, you know, their presence in invisibility you know, in this country. But yeah, I'm with you on that. I think it's outrageous and they should have probably chosen. There's so many other people they could have chosen. And here's the thing that gets us to, it's like, there's all the deference is given to the one side, but the moment, like you said, anybody steps up and says, Hey, this is actually what's insulting. And this need, it's like that opinion is villainized almost. And so there needs to be a better balance, you know, between the two. So I want to move into quickly here, what you're doing now forward. A lot of what we talk about is how to build forward. And that's a lot of what you talk about too. And we love that. And you and your wife have, an organization is it beyond the battlefield yeah beyond the battlefield uh, it's the tigan foundation.org is the website some uk company had the uh, the website beyond the battlefield <laughs> jerks <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah, we do that we uh we help veterans and first responders uh, our main goal is to try to get veteran service dogs we've gotten we got one service dog for one guy and then we got uh, more training for another one but, you know, we don't just stop there. Uh, I know going around doing a lot of uh, veteran nonprofits, you know, help them raise more money and see what they did and how they do it. And listen to other veterans, some of the issues with some of the veteran nonprofits. Um, like, biggest one is, you know, this is our bylaws. And if you don't meet these bylaws, we're not going to help. I've seen yeah. it so many different levels. Of yes. So what we did... Ours, our goal was we are, we're pretty much, we can do whatever we want if they need it. You know, we got to verify who you say you are, but we're going to help you out if we can. We're not going to push you away. We're going to, we can't help you. We will find somebody. That's awesome. And that's, so you'll work with another entity. Oh, yeah. You'll link them up. Because that, I think if all these veteran non, I mean, what is probably like 20 trillion freaking net veteran nonprofits now. Yes. If you're linked together and help each other, it'd be the help they give the veterans and first responders would be a lot more, a lot more effective if you just cross brand with each other and help each other out. I mean, I help other nonprofits raise money. I mean, um, with car firearms, we've helped raise so far about $120,000 for 10 different veteran organizations. Wow. 
So, you know, I don't just work for myself, or, you know, because again, it benefits other people. Just, I mean, you know, my foundation, it does what it does, but this other foundation takes people hunting. This one does one for, uh, you know, fitness. You know, this one does it for, uh, PTS. You know, they have the counselors, they have the, uh, the getaway homes and some getaway homes, but the facilities that take veterans in for multiple days, you know, like one I just went up with, um, I was, friends, I keep forgetting. It's like veterans community something, but, uh, they make, they make tiny homes for homeless vets. Oh, that's vets. awesome. Yeah. This little neighborhood, I think it's got like 20 or 30 tiny homes in it. You know, they bring the veterans in, you know, they, they try to get them, they kind of, they kind of try to get them moving quick, you know, try to keep them about four months. And but they help them get jobs. They help, help them do the resume. But if they need longer to stay, they stay longer. You know, but they try to you know keep them flowing so they just you know I know veterans. They'll they'll milk that thing as long as they can. <laughs> some yeah yeah but, some will some will. So it, it's yeah, a good. Go I mean, it's a, that's I you know I'd like to grow, grow mine, but you know you also got to help the other ones grow because it's about the veteran, not about yourself. Well, yes, but there's nothing wrong with centering there on your own primary purpose too. We'll ask uh, the people who are comment. We've got a bunch of comments and questions. Go ahead and and remember to like that and share it and send it off to people so they can watch this later too. Because we'd really like to spread the word about your foundation. What uh, what prompted you and your wife to start that? Um, it was really I do a, a hard roast every year. Um, and I've done it probably since 2002, I want to say. And it was after I got out of the Marine Corps and I came home and finally moved back to Colorado, you know, kind of didn't have a chance to hang out with my friends and stuff like that, you know, because of the time being out of Colorado. So I finally just kind of started doing this. All my friends, you know, finally started coming over. So one year, see, I want to say it's almost been four years now, I think. Probably been four years now. But we did a hog roast out here and one of my buddies, um, an army vet had to have brain surgery while the VA wasn't paying for it. So they said it wasn't related. He had raised a bunch of money and he needed another five grand. And this is about a month before the hoggers. So we said, you know, what? we'll turn into a fundraiser. So we ended up raising about 2,500 bucks for him. But on top of that, he invited a couple of his other friends out and one of his buddies, you know, Another army guy, you know, he brought his wife and two kids out and, you know, stayed for that weekend. When he went home about a week later, he sent us an email saying, you know, this was going to, that was going to be my last few off. You know, I thought it was just going to be, you know, just going to come out and do the normal thing and he was going to go kill himself. Oh my God. But he said that just like camaraderie again and talking to other wounded veterans. We had, you know, veterans always come out because we're around Fort Carson and stuff like that. But yeah. They're just talking around with them and, you know, just hanging out for that weekend. It just blew my mind and you know, it changed his life right there. So since then, we're just like, that's it. That's kind of how it went. Wow, that's huge. So if people want to get involved and, and find out how to help, do you, you accept donations? Do you have volunteers? If somebody, like say, somebody out on this coast says, hey, I'd love to help you with that. Is there a way for people to get involved, even if they're not physically in your community? Um, it's uh, just the TigerFoundation.org. It's easiest way to get a hold of us. Obviously, you can donate there and everything. So, um, you know, again, we help veterans all over. It ain't just here in Colorado. I mean, three of the veterans that we're helping are actually down in Texas. 
Oh, yeah, Texas is a big state for that. Uh, I'm going to link you up with someone that we have worked with too. Her name is Annie Nelson. She's got American Soldier Network. She's trying to. Cre- she has created a website, RuckUp.org, for people like you who have you know vetted organizations, so that a veteran can yeah. hop online and find these national resources. So you know we can get your organization linked up with her, and so it can appear on her website, and people can when they hop on, they can find you, and, and uh, you know hit you up for to offer support or to ask for support. I think that would be great. Last couple of questions. We'll let you go. You've already been super cool about, about this morning. <laughs> I have to say, I noticed did you have twins. You have a twin boy and girl. Yep. Uh, How old are they? Six years old. Six. So yeah. I have a twin brother. And so that's what made me pay a little more attention. I think it is super cool growing up as that we did uh, it, not necessarily things all the same, but definitely the same mindsets and attitudes. So I think it'll be fun for you to watch them growing up and seeing how yeah, I don't know there's something about the twin mindset that is true do they do any things like that that are the same do they think the same yet or are they protective of each other they're definitely protective of each other but they'll beat each other too just like normal siblings but they're the only ones allowed to beat each other pretty much yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Although, so, I don't think that anybody's gonna come along and mess with especially your daughter down the road like <laughs> I, think I, I pity those guys Jesus <laughs> Like already, so <laughs> thirty. She's already went to her uh, first steel gun match. Oh my god! Good for her. Good for her. That is a new generation of women growing up, and I love it. A little uh, envious that they're, you know, raised with that kind of badass mindset there. So we talk a lot here at American Snippets about the American dream, and for us, it's important. We know, obviously, out there, the climate is being told. It seems like there's a anti-American dream force out there, if you will, trying to make us all believe that it's dead and gone and it's not available to anyone. We say the opposite is true. But when I ask you about the American dream, you know, what does that mean to you? Just being able to do what you want. Um, I know a lot of people think, well, you got a big house, you know, a lot of money, but I think you can do whatever you want here. You're not, I mean, you, you can be the president if you want. You can own your own company if you want. You can be a bum if you want. <laughs> this is true. You know, so actually, I ran into a couple guys who said, "No, we. I love living on the street. I wouldn't. There's just no responsibility, you know what? But again, the American dream is just being able to do what you want, be who you want. That's me. awesome. I think that sums it up. So, if there was one person in this entire world who you have not met before that you could call up, we could call up right now and say, "Yo, get over to Tig's house and spend the afternoon with him." Who would that be? Oh, gee, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody you haven't met that you want to meet? Uh, I don't know. It would be probably cool to meet General Mattis. There you go. I, I can't believe you haven't met him already. No, I haven't met him. met General Flynn and Kelly. Oh, my God. All right. So we have here watching this guy named William Mimiaga. His name is Monsoon, everyone calls him. We've known him. Monsoon, pay attention here. Monsoon is a retired Marine who once failed General Madison inspection, right? And just <laughs> saw him. <laughs> yeah. And he just saw him this past weekend uh, at an event for Medal of Honor recipients. So Monsoon, you have a new mission. This man right here needs to meet General Mattis. And if you don't make that happen, you're not getting your Harley. So there, we just called him out. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> what a Harley? All right. I can't do it. We had a lot of Harleys. We got Orange County Choppers here right in our neighborhood. We'll hit them up next and we'll link you. Okay. Orange County Choppers. Um, 
let's let's get them on that too. So if we get you a meeting with General Mattis and we get Orange County Choppers involved, does that make up for the technical issues this morning? <laughs> so you don't you don't get what you don't ask for. That is true. So we're on it now, and that's a fun mission and uh, something I could totally get behind. All right. Thank you so, so much, not only for your service and everything you and your wife are doing. She sounds awesome and amazing, too. She's got twins. She's got a Marine husband. She's been in the military. She's a contractor. She sounds like she could be a leader. She is a leader in her own right. So we thank her for her service, too. And thank you for taking the time to be with us today, to be a part of the American Snippets community. We love your story. And please feel free to reach out to us at any point after we get your, your Harley and the meeting with General Mattis and see if there's a, you know, anything else we could do for you. Okay. <laughs> I'm here for you guys. Okay. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Oh, oh hang on. Dave just pointed out to me again. I think Dave, we need to get Dave in for behind the scenes because I suck at this part. Um, I have neglected woefully to ask the audience to like and share and comment. It is not my strengths. I got a lot of strengths. I got a lot of not strengths. So that's it. So audience, bail me out because I have not asked you properly or often enough uh, to like and share. So please go ahead and do that. And thank you, Tig, again, for being here today. Make sure everybody follows Tig. We have posted throughout this interview. We have posted all the places you can follow him and support him and his work. Please go ahead and do so. Thanks so much. Thank you, guys. All right, everyone. Dave Brown here again. Just want to personally thank you for tuning in to today's show, listening in. And I personally want to thank John Tig Tigan also for taking the time to share his story with us. Uh, thank John for his service and his sacrifice. Uh, we really appreciate and are so grateful uh, that you did that Facebook Live with us and shared your story with us and our audience. If you got some value out of today's episode and you enjoyed this episode, make sure you share it with a friend, share it on social media, at American Snippets. Make sure you tag us. Uh, and again, I told you in the beginning of this episode, in the intro, you know, to make sure you take the time to thank uh, John for his service. And you can do that on his social media profiles. You can find him on Facebook, uh, John Tigen13. That's T-I-E-G-E-N. And also on Instagram, John underscore Tigen uh, on Instagram. So make sure you follow him, shout him out, um, let them know that you listen to this podcast at American Snippets. And again, just you know, take the time uh, to thank him for his service uh, and all that he has done for this country. Uh, a little housekeeping real quick, uh, just to finish this off um, before we uh, close out. Barb and I love the work that we do here at American Snippets, and it's our mission to spread positivity, possibility, and patriotism across this country. So if you enjoy our work, you believe in this mission, uh, all you have to do is a small part, right? All we, that we ask is that you subscribe uh, and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app, whether that be iTunes or Google Podcasts, Spotify, we're on iHeartRadio. You know, subscribe, leave us a review. Let us know what you thought about this show, uh, this interview with John Tig Tigan. Uh, and also, uh, don't forget, we have a full featured article and the entire Facebook Live interview that we did with John over on our site, americansnippets.com forward slash zero six. Four. Uh, again, we appreciate you being here today. Uh, now go out there and show the world how exceptional you truly are. We'll see you next time.